Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, we'll be reading together this morning, verses 5 through 17. Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 17. Here in this passage, the Apostle Paul is speaking about the importance of not only believing the gospel in our hearts, but actually confessing, confessing the truth of that gospel with our lips. So Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 17. Please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word that's given to us this morning. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to say, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, please turn with me now in your order of worship to the confessional reading element. This morning we will be reciting together the first article of our Belgic Confession. So Belgic Confession, Article 1. Well, Christian, what do you believe? We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just and good, and the overflowing source of all good. Let us pray and ask that the Lord would bless our consideration of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not remained hidden, but you have revealed yourself to us, not only in in the beauty and the grandeur of creation, but most supremely in your written word. And we thank you that we have the privilege as your redeemed people of hearing this word proclaimed, this word which alone is able to bring faith, living and active faith in our hearts. And we pray that you would use this word to further strengthen the faith which your spirit has created and gifted to us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you know, last week we finished up our consideration of the Heidelberg Catechism, and today we are going to start 
a series on the Belgic Confession. Now, this Belgic Confession is one of our three confessional documents in addition to the Heidelberg Catechism and the Canons of Dort. Now, this, this, this confession was written in 1561, so a couple years before the Heidelberg Catechism was written, and it was written by a man named Guido de Bray, and he was a pastor in uh, the Netherlands, or what is today uh, the Netherlands and, and Belgium, and he wrote this confession specifically for, uh, for the Dutch churches of what, again, is today the Netherlands and Belgium. And even though this confession was the work of, of one single author, there are many other theologians that played a hand in editing this confession. And Debray had or was influenced by the French confession, which was used in the French Reformed churches in the 16th century, and by Calvin's Institutes. John Calvin wrote a big, big volume on basically systematic theology, and, and Debray was very influenced by that work as he wrote this confession. In fact, the, the outline of the Belgic confession mirrors the outline of Calvin's Institutes. Now, one thing that's important to to also note is that the Dutch churches at this time were being severely persecuted by King Philip II of Spain. Uh, the Dutch churches were churches under the cross. In fact, Debray himself was martyred for his Reformed Christian faith. And so as we read the, these articles, as we consider these articles in the year to come, you'll notice that uh, for Debray, these, these articles were not just dry academic theology, but rather these doctrines are what sustained him in a life of suffering. Now, pull back for a moment. Why should we care about this document? Uh, that might be a question some of us are, are wondering. Why should we care about a document that was written by a fallible, errant man written in the 16th century in Europe? Why should we care? Why should we devote a service? Why should we devote our time each Lord's Day to considering the truth of God's word through the lens of this confession? Well, G.K. Chesterton once uh, gave a very helpful uh, illustration or analogy. He said that essentially there are two categories of people. One category of people come across a fence or a, uh, a gate in a road, and they think, I have no idea why this gate or fence was constructed, and so I'm just going to tear it down. The other category of people come across the same fence or gate in the road, and they think, I have no, no idea why this gate or fence is here, but I'm not going to tear it down until I know why it was constructed in the first place. So many people today, many conservative, evangelical Protestants, look at the ancient creeds, creeds that were written in the first, fourth century and even before, and the confessions and catechisms of the Reformation written in the 16th century. And they look at these documents and they think to themselves, I, I see no use of these in the con, uh, for these in the contemporary church, and so they disregard them. They throw them along the wayside. But we would do well to consider the reasons, the reasons that the church has embraced the creeds and confessions, these historic creeds and confessions, really ever since the time of Christ and his apostles. Why has the church historically embraced these creeds and confessions? We would do well to consider that. And so that's what I'd like us to do this morning. In fact, you'll notice that the opening line of this first article says, we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths. This confession begins by reminding us of the importance of confessing the Christian faith with our mouths. And that's really the line that I want us to focus upon this morning. Next week, we'll, we'll dive into what we believe about God. But today, I'd like to, to think about why should we even bother? 
with confessions of faith within the church. I'd like us to focus on two primary reasons. The first of which is that embracing confessions of faith within the church is actually a biblical thing to do. Embracing confessions of faith within the church is actually a biblical thing to do. Now I say that confessing the faith is biblical not in the sense that these confessions or creeds possess the same authority as the Bible. They do not. They, they are subservient to the Bible. They're fallible. They're errant. Rather, what I mean when I say that confessing the faith is biblical is that the Bible calls us to confess the faith. This is a biblical practice. We are called to be a people who confess the Christian faith. In fact, this is what we read in, in Romans 10, verses 9 through 10. Paul says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, what is Paul saying here? He's saying, in a sense, that confessing the Christian faith is almost of, of equal importance as believing the Christian faith. These two things go hand in hand. They're a package deal. If you truly believe, then you will truly confess. And if you truly confess, then you also will truly believe. There's an intimate connection between believing that Jesus is Lord and confessing that Jesus is Lord. It's a package deal. In fact, Jesus says much the same thing in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, when he says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus is saying that what proceeds from your mouth reveals the content of your heart. And what's in your heart will inevitably come forth through your mouth. Again, there's an intimate connection between those things which are dwelling in our heart and the things that then proceed from our tongues. This is why we see throughout the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, this practice of God's people responding to God's special acts of redemption in history by confessing their faith. So we see this practice, we see this, this principle in both Testaments of God's people responding to God's special acts of redemption in history by responding or by, by confessing their faith. And these confessions of faith serve uh, as an interpretation of God's acts in history. So for instance, in Genesis 28, God reveals himself to Jacob in a dream. And in this dream, he reissues the Abrahamic covenant or Abrahamic promises to Jacob that he and his family will possess this, this great land and be, uh, and be a numerous people. And, and this is how David then responds to God's revelation. He says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did, know, did not know it. How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now what is Jacob doing here? He's responding to God's act, special redemptive act in history, by confessing his faith, offering an interpretation of what just happened. He interprets his dream as, as the Lord is in this place. This is the Lord's doing. This is the Lord's activity. And then in Luke chapter 7, if you fast forward to the New Testament, 
Jesus raises a dead widow's son. And this is how the crowd responds. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. So Jesus acts miraculously in history, raises a dead widow's son from the, from, you know, from the grave, and the crowd confesses their faith by offering an interpretation of that act. A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. They interpreted that event as an act of God. Now, after the end of, of, of the apostolic age, um, God no longer is acting specially or redemptively in history. We're only looking forward to one more great redemptive act of God. That's the second coming of Christ. So we live uh, in this age between the two advents of Christ. And so we then are called to respond or confess in light of Scripture, which is a summary of all of God's acts of redemptive history, bar his second coming. We are to offer an interpretation of Scripture, that summary of God's acts in redemptive history. That's how we imitate this practice, this, this practice of responding by confessing our faith to God's acts in redemptive history. And really, at the end of the day, we all have an, a confession. We all have an interpretation of Scripture. No one just believes Scripture. Everyone believes a certain interpretation of Scripture. And the only difference is whether or not we're upfront about this reality, and whether or not our confession is historically informed and well thought out. And so we are to be a people who confess, confess the Christian faith. Now, why? Why has God placed such an emphasis on confessing the faith? Why, why has God made this practice of confessing the faith so important? Is it arbitrary? Could God just have, have you know, woken one morning and said, nope, I don't care what proceeds from the mouth of my people, I just care about what's in their heart. Why does God make this, say there's a, such, a, such a connection between our hearts and our mouths? Well, if you reflect upon the beginning of our Bibles in Genesis 1 and 2, you'll notice that in, in Genesis 1, God reveals who he is through his speech. That's why in Genesis 1 and 2, you see this repeated refrain of, and God said, and God said. The only way we know about who God is in Genesis 1 and 2 is through considering his speech or his words. In fact, if I were to ask you to make a list of God's attributes in Genesis 1 and 2, you'd be making a list based on what his words reveal about him. If you restrict yourself to Genesis 1 and 2, the only way you know that God is good, God is just, God is wise, is through considering his speech. It's through his words that he manifests his inner identity as being a wise God, a just God, a good God, a benevolent God. And so the principle that Jesus gives in Matthew 12 of out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks is true of us only because it's first of all true of God. Out of the abundance of God's heart, his mouth speaks, you could say. God reveals his inner identity and character and being through his words or through his speech. And that is why there's this intimate connection between our hearts and our mouths. is because we're image bearers of God. We reflect this character of our God. 
And this is why when God made Adam in his image in Genesis 1, one of the first things that Adam does is he names the creatures. He manifests his identity as an image bearer of God through using words. And as, as Adam authoritatively named the creatures, he showed himself to be an image bearer, image bearer of God and reflected God's own pattern in creation, where God spoke and revealed who he was. And so, again, throughout Scripture, we see this pattern of God's people confessing, confessing in light of God's great acts of redemptive history. And the reason why there's such an emphasis and importance on confessing is because we're image bearers of God. This is not an arbitrary practice. When we confess our faith, we are imitating God. We're reflecting who we are as those who are made in his image. Now, in addition to this, we also see many formal confessions of faith throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, the so-called Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, was recited in synagogue worship every week. The early church recited the same uh, creedal statement. The trustworthy sayings of the pastoral epistles were creed-like formulas that were recited in the first century. And so we even have the presence of formal liturgical creeds that were used within the early church. And so why should we care about confessions? We should care about confessions because confessing the faith is a biblical practice. Now second, the second reason why we should embrace confessions is because confessions serve to delimit or delineate the power and authority of the church. Or to put it another way, confessions serve to show congregants and members exactly where the authority of the church begins and ends. Now, I mentioned this briefly back when we were in the book of Titus, but the most succinct proof text for this is Titus 1.9, where Paul is giving qualifications for elders. And in Titus 1.9, Paul says that elders must hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught. Notice, notice that what Paul's saying there. Paul is saying that elders and pastors need to hold fast to the word of God. That's really important, that elders and pastors hold fast to the word of God. But there's more to it than that. They're also to hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught, or in our day and age, as taught, summarized, and confessed in the creeds and confessions of the church. And so elders and pastors are to hold fast to both the word of God and how that word has been confessed throughout the history of the church. And it's from that foundation that they are to teach what accords with sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Consequently then, this verse shows us that the church only has authority to teach within the bounds of the confession. The church only has authority to discipline within the bounds of the confessions. This is such an important point about what it means to be a confessional church. Uh, this means that I don't have the authority to stand up here from the pulpit on the Lord's Day and tell you exactly what candidates you should uh, support in the upcoming primaries or election. I can't tell you exactly what educational option you and your family should pursue for your kids or, or how you should exactly spend your time. Why don't I have the authority to do this? Because these questions are not explicitly answered in the confessions or in the Word of God. 
Now, of course, as you put yourselves under the preached word week by week, you will grow in wisdom, which hopefully will inform how you make these very important decisions in, in all of life. And when I'm out of office, as it were, I can share my private opinion with you and help you think through these decisions, but I can never come with the weight of my office and say, thus saith the Lord, you are bound to make this decision. Because, again, the confessions and God's word do not answer these questions explicitly. And so this is what it means to be a confessional church. It means that the confessions limit my authority as a pastor and uh, John and Tony and, and Scott's authority as elders. It means that the confessions limit what can be taught from this pulpit. The confessions limit what your elders can hypothetically discipline you on. The confessions limit the authority of the church. So there are many churches, even today, that may call themselves to be Reformed churches or may subscribe to historic confessions or creeds, but they are not confessional churches in this sense because pastors, elders in those churches speak authoritatively in all sorts of things that are not found in the confessions or in the Word of God. And so they are binding people's consciences with the commandments of men. And this is why some of you may have heard of NAPARC, uh, North American Reformed and Presbyterian Council. It's basically a coalition of all the conservative Reformed and Presbyterian denominations. And the reason why this coalition is helpful, because ordinarily, again, ordinarily, if you visit a church within NAPARC, you can have confidence that that church is being held accountable by a denomination in what they teach and discipline to make sure that they are doing so in accordance with the confessions. So what it means to be a confessional church is that these confessions aren't just on the books, you know, on the bookshelf of, of the library collecting dust, but they actually function, function within the life of the church. Now, as a side note that I think is a, an interesting side note when it comes to the history of the church, the, this, this point on confessionalism is part of the reason why churches of the Reformation would have their ministers or pastors wear black Genevan preaching gowns. When you read the Reformers, uh, they very clearly distinguished their academic or Genevan plain black gowns from the ordained or the highly um, um, ordained vestments of the Roman Catholic Church. And these reformational gowns signified something completely different than the, the Catholic vestments. And historically speaking, what these gowns signified is that they, what they, how they functioned is that they functioned to hide the personality and individuality of the minister. Just as when you go to the doctor and you're sitting in front of a man or a woman in a, in a white coat, in that moment you don't really care whether you share common interests with that doctor. You just care whether or not they can do the duties and join to their office. In the same way, historically speaking, when congregants would see a minister in a gown, a plain black Genevan gown, that would trigger in their mind that this is not a time for me to get to know pastor. This is a time for me to sit and hear God's authoritative word through God's appointed mouthpiece. You know, a midweek picnic, that's a time where you can get to know your pastor in a more intimate level. But the pulpit is not a place for you to get to know me. The pulpit is not a place for me to, to share stories about myself and talk about me. To put it another way, the pulpit is not a platform. This is a point that, that many churches don't fully recognize in our day and age. The pulpit is not a platform. The pulpit is not a platform for the pastor's own individual self-expression. 
The pulpit is a place where God's herald is called to preach the good tidings of the gospel and the thunderings of God's law. That's what the pulpit is all about. It's not a platform for individual self-expression. This is not my church. You know, in 10 years from now, whether or not I'm here, whether or not Tony's here, whether or not John's here, this church, Lord willing, will still be a Christian church, a URC church, and a confessionally reformed church. This church is not tied to, to me, to Tony, to John, or any other leader who will serve. This church is a Christian church. It's Christ's church. And that's the confidence that we should have. And our, our prayer and hope is that people would join this church, not because they like me more than the pastor down the street, but because they want to be committed to a Christian and confessionally reformed church, regardless of who the pastor is who's serving there. And so the point here is not to say that all pastors need to wear gowns. The point is the deeper principle, that we need to protect the pulpit and keep the pulpit the pulpit and not a platform, that we need to make sure that what's coming forth from the pulpit is the trustworthy word as taught, summarized, and confessed in the Reformed Confessions. And so, again, one of the reasons why we should embrace these, these historic confessions of the faith is because they very helpfully delineate the authority of the church. Now, there's many things that one could say about what confessions do. They help divide where we need to divide. Again, distinguish orthodoxy from heresy. They help uh, define where we should find our unity as, as members of the church. They also tie us to something historic. They're good and helpful pedagogical tools. But I'd like to move on at this point and just briefly, as we move towards the conclusion, think about how we can grow in confessing our faith. We talk a lot about growing in our faith, our belief, but we won't talk a lot about how we can grow in confessing our faith. And so I'd like to spend a few moments just thinking about how can we grow as a people who confess our faith, to confess the Christian faith. I think the two, two reasons or two ways in which we can grow in confessing our faith is through learning our confession and speaking about our confession. So learning our confession, speaking about our confession. Now, one of the, the first things that the Protestant reformers did in the 16th century is that they drafted catechisms and confessions of faith. And then they instituted a catechism service whereby they would teach through these catechisms and confessions of faith. The Roman Catholic Church believed that it didn't really place much emphasis on the knowledge aspect of saving faith. Really, they just called upon their people to place their implicit faith in the church, and the church does all the knowing and believing for them. Well, the Reformers rejected this, this notion, and they reasserted the biblical idea that we all are called to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how are we going to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we need confessions and catechisms, and we need space and time in our week to actually learn these confessions and catechisms, which is why they instituted a catechism service. This, then, is why we have a catechism service, so that we, in this historic practice and tradition can, as a people of God, learn what we believe and why we believe it. Grow up, as Peter says, into the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are called to be a people who, who learn, who learn these important truths. And the confessions help us to know where we should spend our time. It's very easy for, for Christians today to, to, to treat tertiary issues as if they're cardinal tenets of the faith. Um, 
Examples of this could be end times or creation days or age of the universe. Again, those are important issues, tertiary issues. They're not the cardinal tenets of the faith. And so the confessions distill what are the most important aspects of the faith? What are the mountain peaks of the faith that we should devote most of our attention to? And so we are to be a people who learn the Christian faith. The second way in which we grow in confessing the faith is actually speaking about these truths. The more these doctrines are, 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 are dwelling in our heart, the more they will bubble up and come out of our mouths. So parents... Uh, you are called to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, which means you are called to instruct your children in the historic Christian faith. And the best way to do that is through the historic creeds and confessions and catechisms of the church. And so for those of you who have youths, we encourage you uh, to talk about this sermon in particular, to talk about the articles of the Belgic Confession as we proceed during this academic year in preparation for our youth catechism events. For the rest of us, we should talk about these things with those around us, our spouse, our family members, our friends. We should allow these truths and these doctrines to inform our prayers, and we should use these truths in our edification of other people. Again, as I mentioned before, these are not, the, the author of this catechism did not treat these doctrines as dry academic theology, but rather fodder, fodder to be used in order to encourage and edify those around us. And that's how we should speak about these truths. They should not only dwell in our hearts, but should come forth into our mouths as we go forth into the week. And so why? Why should we confess the Christian faith? It's biblical. It helps delineate the power and authority of the church. And the way in which we grow in confessing the faith is by learning the confession and speaking about the confession. Now, next week, we will turn our attention to considering what we confess about God, that he's single, simple, and spiritual. Let us pray.